lot of global events go far back in history. Games, performances, world fairs, and the like, including the Olympics, which much of the world is uh, focused on right now. They're whimsical, ghostly affairs, built in a flash, and then when the fair is over, taken down with barely a trace. There's only one building left from the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which literally electrified the world for months, with its fancy electric lights, glowing glass, and steel buildings, only to vanish, like a city built, you might say, by the circus. It's the architecture of quick build and get-out-of-town, tents and prefabs, artistic design meets Lego-style construction and engineering. And it's part of the approach of this London Olympic Games. It's an interesting challenge for any architect, and we're thrilled to speak with the man who designed the very modular and uh, customizable London Olympics arena. Love it now because it won't be around in the same form in a few months. Ron Sheard is senior principal at the architectural firm Populous. Congrats. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So, uh, Mr. Sherrod, what is the challenge? What are the specifications of this stadium, which, of course, is very, very different from the permanent and now mostly empty Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing right now? Yeah, exactly. It's um, Well, in recent Olympics, uh, the problem has been not so much that the buildings have been transitory, but in actual fact, the exact opposite. They've been big monoliths which cities have felt necessary to build. And then, of course, as your commentary said, the uh, Olympics leaves town and the buildings are left with nothing to do. And I think that London, particularly Seb Coe, felt very strongly that we didn't really want that to happen in London. We have a pretty good stock of good stadiums of all sorts. But the one thing we didn't have was a small athletic stadium. And so the initial concept was to be able to transform this 80,000-seat Olympic Stadium and convert it down to a much smaller 25,000-seat athletic stadium after the Games. So how do you do the shrink? What is it? Uh, Is it like Legos? Well, it's an interesting question that it took us about six months to come to the <laughs> come to a solution. We got the job through tender in the early 2007, and um, I mean the, the challenge is that any architect will tell you is that you know architecture is all about permanence. I mean that's the way you judge whether a building is a fine building or not, whether it looks good in 20 years as it does on opening day. And here was a brief that was quite opposite. It was to say this building was only going to last a few weeks and then it was going to transform. And the other challenge was that we didn't necessarily know what it was going to transform into because the final um, choice of events hasn't been made yet. So um, we eventually got somewhere to the point where we embraced the temporary. We started to see the temporary nature of the building as an asset, not something to be worried about and as a hindrance, but something as an opportunity where we could use different materials and different colors and different approaches to design than we would ever do if it was going to be a fixed permanent building that never changed. You've mentioned that this is a blank slate. You think of this this building as a blank slate, and that's an unusual uh, choice of language, it seems to me, for an architect. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's it's very easy for architects to let their ego get in their way a little bit. But the architecture of sport and sport and entertainment generally is not about the building so much. It's about the event that's going to take place inside them. And that applies to the Olympics spectacularly so. So last Friday night, um, we've always seen this building as... Um, a blank canvas, a a three-dimensional blank canvas, where last Friday Danny Boyle 
uh, painted his masterpiece for the opening ceremony. And starting Friday, we'll have Usain Bolt and a whole bunch of other athletes who will mark the stadium with their own particular special brand of magic. The building is, is in many ways uh, a neutral backdrop to those events because the amount of work we put in compared to the athletes dedicating the first 25 years of their life to just to be the best in the world uh, pales in insignificance in many ways. You'll have a second client uh, if the uh, stadium is acquired uh, either by uh, the government in, uh, in London or some new commercial client. Uh, they will have specifications. Will they control how you shrink the building down to 25,000 seats? Well, that's true. Um, but the, the final decision on that hasn't been taken yet. Um, there will be a transformation of the building. I think that's pretty certain. Um, exactly how it's going to be transformed, nobody knows yet. It might go all the way down to the 25,000 seat that Sepco envisaged right from the beginning, or it may stay much as we see it today, perhaps with a slightly reduced capacity down to perhaps 60,000. But the way we've designed it, um, which is, as you said in your introduction, is very modular-based. We've designed every component of the building to be quite separate from every other component. So we can change the building in any way we like afterwards without upsetting things dramatically. I mean, for example, if you had a helicopter big enough, you could literally lift off that white roof and its little diagonal legs and wow. put it in the middle of Hyde Park, and nothing else would move. And equally, you can change and take out the entire upper tier or even part of the upper tier, and nothing else would change. Wow. So it's that sort of modular approach that allows us to have that flexibility. Talking with Rod Shear, the architect who led the design team in charge of London's Olympic Stadium, the modularity of which you can hear him describing there. Uh, Let's just uh, tell our listeners, you referred to Seb Coe a moment ago. That's not some utility in London. That's Sebastian Coe, who's the the lord uh, uh, kind of reigning over all of these facilities and worked with you on this design. Talk about the technology a little bit. We're, We're familiar with Frank Gehry buildings that are completely cut on computer and delivered on site with the detailed assembly instructions. Uh, He's certainly not the only architect to do that sort of thing, but uh, the technology is much different than what was available to you in Sydney when you designed the stadium down there. Yeah, very much so. Ten years ago, um, the computer power, although we used computers in those days, was nothing like we do now. And what we do now is pretty well build the building in the computer before we ever go to site. So we end up with a perfect computer model of the building. Um, And when we change anything, everything changes in the computer model. And it's pretty well the only way that you can build the sort of building that you see out there at the Olympics today. And to be able to do it in that sort of component form so that we were certain of everything fitting together, um, you know, when we're actually on site. But the, the important thing from a client point of view is by breaking the building down into those parts, it meant that the decision-making process, which is always a bit of a challenge when you're doing an Olympic stadium, um, the decision-making process could could follow not necessarily in a chronological order. We could, for example, we were pushing ahead and actually building on site the seating tiers before the final decision as how much roof we were going to have was taken. And that gave a great deal of flexibility in how the client made their decisions. Oh, so it's you can build in sub-stages and a lot of decisions, as you know, on uh, big developments uh, do get postponed to the end. Um, with the computer did uh, Seb Coe, Sebastian Coe, get to come into your offices and poke around at the uh, simulation and get to say things like, make that a little taller, make that a little smaller? 
We um, certainly there's a certain amount of interactivity, and and that's possible. Although we tended to go to Lord Coe rather than him come to us. Right, I mean, yeah, he was I the guy figure. that he was the guy that was put in charge of bidding for the Olympics. And in, unusually for an Olympics, he he was followed even after London won the games. He followed through, and he was the guy that delivered it. But it was really his vision that saw that you could. Do, do the Olympic Games in a different sort of way. He had the credentials um, as an athlete because he was a gold medalist. Uh, he had the credentials as a politician because he had been uh, in the government in the UK. And he is a good communicator, so he had the credibility of the public believing him. And he was in many ways the right man in the right place at the right time. Is there an element of sustainability that the strategy of this kind of building is more efficient, uh, uses natural resources in a more intelligent way, is maybe greener? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the the whole... Uh, environmental sustainability agenda is incredibly important for these buildings, all these buildings these days, all big sports buildings, but in London Olympics it was particularly so. But what we we did, uh, we undertook quite a lot of research on it, and we found that um, whilst most buildings tend to consume more energy in their operation than they do in their construction, certainly within about five to eight years, most buildings are using more energy than the building absorbed in making it. Now, in stadia, that's different because they're occasional use buildings. So quite often, a stadium doesn't use the energy that it has taken to build it for 40 or 50 years. Wow. So it meant that actually the energy, the carbon footprint of constructing the building became absolutely critical. And, and to some extent, this isn't rocket science. I mean, you can, if you build less, you've got a smaller carbon footprint. So we set about building the lightest um, and, I suppose, in a way, the most delicate stadium that's ever been built. Certainly, it's the lightest Olympic stadium and certainly a stadium of 80,000 that's ever been built. It's uh, just over 10,000 tons of steel. And if you compare that with a typical 80,000-seat stadium, it might be anywhere between 50 and 100,000 tons. Wow. Uh, We use recycled materials. We use concrete that was recycled aggregates. Even the the big tube that you see around the top of the stadium is a disused gas pipeline that we managed to use. So, yeah, a lot of sustainability ideas went into it. Finally, before we go, would you be sad if uh, the use of this building ultimately was a kind of Euro flea market or monster trucks that you didn't get a team in there somehow? <laughs> well, there's even been a suggestion of using it for Formula One motor racing. Nice. Um, look, we are completely open-minded about what it gets used for. It's going to be part of a beautiful park uh, that's a great asset to the east end of London. The, the Olympic Games has really opened up the east end of London that most people would never have been to before. So we're open-minded as to what it gets used for. I just hope that it gets used for a lot of things. All right, Dirac Shear, the uh, design leader in charge of London's Olympic Stadium, speaking to us from London. Congratulations, Rod. Thank you very much. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts.